welcome to another episode of the Lewis and Kyle Show, where you get to listen to awesome interviews with inspiring entrepreneurs, investors, authors, and a whole variety of other fascinating, super interesting people. Today, we have Aaron Clymer on the show. He's the founder and CEO of a company called Data Clymer, which is a pretty large data consulting firm that works with major league sports teams like the San Francisco Giants and the Las Vegas Raiders to help them understand all of the data coming in and out of their business, building proper infrastructure, making great decisions based on analytics, and a whole lot more. He works with a bunch of companies that are major league sports teams. Those just tend to be the sexiest and most exciting. Uh, Before this, Aaron spent seven years building the data team at Salesforce, which is kind of where he got really good at this whole building large data teams things. This episode covers how Aaron started his data company and grew so large so quickly in terms of personnel and in terms of clientele. We discuss how he ended up in data in the first place, despite having something pretty unrelated to data in college. We discuss the most exciting trends in the world of data. He loves data, so there are a lot of cool trends. We discuss how dramatically data infrastructure has changed just in the past 20 years or so. And we also, towards the end, discuss what it was like for Aaron to grow up living in multiple countries instead of just in one place. That was also pretty interesting, if you ask me. As always, listeners of the Lewis and Kyle Show will know we discuss much more than what I summarize in this 30-second blurb before we get started. Anyway, I'm going to switch to a brief word from our sponsor, and then we'll get this party started. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by our friends at VASA, the virtual assistant staffing agency. We hired our first virtual assistants from VASA to assist with our operations running the show back in June. But VASA is not just for podcast editors. If you need some extra hands to free up your time, let VASA help you with hiring for administrative, technical, and creative work. That's graphic design, cold callers, social media managers, sales reps, video editors, admin assistants, and more. Free up your time to focus on your highest impact work and learn more about VASA at vastaffing.agency or by clicking the link in the show notes to schedule a free strategy session with their team. Alrighty, back to the show. Aaron, welcome to the Lewis and Kyle Show. We're excited to be chatting today. Thanks, guys. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. I want to start out, you're just telling us kind of, uh, before we had started, that you've had a kind of winding career, kind of a bunch of zigs and zags, and during your 20s, you didn't really know uh, what it was that you were going to be doing. What was your, when you're graduating college, like, what did you think you were going to be doing? Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, when I graduated college, uh, I had a degree in geology, actually. So I was studying rocks. I loved it because it was camping for credit. I got to be outside. I got to explore the world. And I, again, I really had no idea where I was going with that necessarily. I just, um, and I feel like it's kind of my life in a way. I just kind of go where, where something interests me. And I, uh, you know, it's kind of the circuitous path. That's the journey. And that's, that's the point of life anyway. So I, I just enjoy doing so many things and going so many directions. Um, I thought I was going to keep going with that. I mean, I went straight into my, um, I actually went straight into the PhD program at Berkeley. And I studied with Walter Alvarez, who's the, he's a famous uh, geologist who sort of discovered the theory of the dinosaurs becoming extinct by asteroid impact. And I thought that was really interesting. And I actually did my my master's, I ended up getting a master's and I got, did all my studies on asteroid impacts and mass extinctions. I thought that was a fascinating, you know, uh, understanding of the history of the, of the earth. And about two years into that, into the PhD program, I decided that's it. I'm out. I don't want to do this. It's either academia or um, maybe oil and gas, or, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't really sure where else I could go with the geology itself, some environmental work perhaps, but none, none of that was I wasn't passionate enough about any of that to just keep going. So, uh, you know, I mean, 
it's all about circumstance and timing as well in your life. I just, this in my life, that happened to be the dot-com boom. Well, that was a good time to get in high tech. I like to joke that as long as you had a pulse and you could think a little bit, you know, you definitely get to get a job in high tech. Um, and so uh, I just pivoted. I said, I'm going to get out and probably going to go into high tech. But that's exactly what I did. And I never looked back and I've always been so happy that I made that decision. So you're already in the Bay Area at the time. Yeah, that's right. Uh, exactly. I was living in Berkeley and, and going to Cal and getting my degree there. Yeah, so then I stayed there about 20 years and um, within a variety of roles, all Silicon Valley kind of high tech stuff, everything from software engineering. We started out as a software engineer, Java developer. And I kind of, I mean, okay, we spend the whole show on some interesting uh, .com stories, but uh, sure you know, I got a job at a .com uh, two weeks before the IPO in 99 and, uh, and had a Corona beer while I did my first interview and drew a few tab you know, database tables on a whiteboard and uh, I was hired and it turned out to be the highest, it was the, it was the highest flying stock in 99 on the NASDAQ. Uh, it's just this crazy company called Commerce One that would had been, they'd invented web services. They had the patent on SOAP APIs. You know, I mean, they were inventing this platform that all commerce was going to go through. So how do you value that? Right. It's like all business should go through this, you know, platform at some point. Um, so those were crazy days where we were all experimenting, you know, with the internet and not knowing where it was going. So but that, that got me into high tech and, and loved enterprise software and enterprise uh, data applications. And um, yeah, just uh, stayed there again, like 20 years. I, I just moved to Minnesota this year. So now I'm a Midwesterner again. What Back was the crash like? You know, um, <laughs> what do I say about the crash? I, I feel like I either have a guardian angel or I, and I got really lucky. It didn't affect me all that much in terms of longevity, I guess, of some, some of the jobs I've had the, because of this company I was with commerce one had done so well right up into the crash and had actually accumulated something like a billion dollars in cash, um, for major players like SAP and Microsoft, everybody was investing in this, wanted to have a piece of it. And so they had cash to burn. They burned through that money for six years during the crash. So I kept my job that entire time um, trying to help the company recover. It didn't really work out. But I finally, uh, after the crash then, you know, I was considering moving around and I actually used that story to um, get a, I actually got a scholarship through my alma mater that funded my MBA. The, the scholarship I was the, the sort of the essay I wrote was all about trying to turn this company around that I thought had great vision just poor execution. And so that led me into uh, my, uh, my MBA at, again at, at Berkeley. And during that time, I took a data science course before it was called data science. It was really uh, predictive modeling and targeted marketing for, for purposes of marketing and learned how to build all sorts of predictive models and deal with data. And that's really when the light bulb went off in my head that this is exactly what I want to do with the rest of my career is data specifically. I was doing enterprise app software and a lot of data related applications and a lot of database uh, coding, but not pure data and data warehousing. So I pivoted my career again and got directly into data warehousing and uh, actually went straight into Salesforce after that. So I just like lots of, sorry, that's past the crash, but the crash was, um, so the crash didn't feel, it just didn't feel as much of a crash to me personally. And so I, I kind of skipped a lot of the pain of that. So I, I guess I don't, 
I don't have a whole lot to say about that. Um, and, and again, this is my guardian angel story. Ironically, I started at Salesforce in 2008, right when the, the next crash hit, the, the, the 2008-2009 sort of recession. Salesforce sailed right through that, didn't even slow down in growth. So, so again, I didn't really feel the pain there. Uh, yeah, I got gotten really fortunate and really lucky over the last past 20 years. Might be the boring question to some people, but what did data warehousing look like in like 2007, 2008? Yeah, it was a night and day. I kind of, I'm still extremely amazed at the amount of innovation that has happened in that space just in the last 10 years. It was all on-premise, first of all. Uh, at Salesforce, we were running an Oracle data warehouse. So I, I started at Salesforce and I, I ended up running the founding and running the data team. There really wasn't even a data team when I got there. Another kind of crazy story of a largest cloud company in the world uh, and very data focused, but still it was not about data internally. And so uh, we were running on an Oracle data warehouse there and it was pretty horrible. You know, it was uh, very slow. You definitely could not bring in all your data into one place. You only had to bring in the most important data. You often spent a lot of time writing or creating aggregate tables that were summarizing a lot of data for you because the raw data was too large to query directly, you know, or let end users touch the raw data or the, the low grain data, I should say. Um, so it's just a lot of work keeping that thing up. It was also, uh, you know, it took like 10 times the amount of staff and people to run, to run it. You know, you had to have at least one or two DBAs and they're for a, you know, this is a company, let's say three, 4,000 people are, you know, a medium sized company at the time to just do nothing but keep the lights on with a data warehouse, you know, and, and everything from storage constraints, capacity planning to uh, compression techniques to, uh, you know, sort of the way, the way you approached all your table design, all that stuff. So it, it took all these roles that today we don't even really need anymore because the vendors have taken care of a lot of those headaches and technical aspects of data warehousing. Now you can focus much more on the business. It was also about at least 5X expensive because of that. And a lot of it was, was the resources of the people you had to hire and have on staff, but the, the software itself was really expensive. And those were the days when you purchase software just by how many CPUs it was going to run on, how many cores, how many servers, and it was millions of dollars for what now you could get for $100,000, you know? So prices have come way down, performance has gone way up, headaches have gone really away in this area. I mean, I should say totally away, but it's it's, it's like night and day. So it's been, uh, that's one of the things I just really enjoy about being in the space today is how much faster we can get to the business outcome that we're looking for. I'm curious briefly before we dive into, uh, you know, the rest of the story, that moment where uh, you found data and you're like, this is what I want to spend the rest of my life on. Like, what was that like? And, and, you know, it's pretty unique, I would say. I don't, I don't know many people that are like, okay, data, this is it. So what was that moment like for you? Yeah, it's like love at first sight. Come on, we all, we all know what that feels like. <laughs> That's it. Like, like when I met my wife, I knew, I knew. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think that that has a lot to do with my personality as well. I, I like having data guide a lot of my decisions and, and show me kind of the way to a solution or to an outcome I'm looking for. You know, sometimes I feel like I'm not the most intuitive person on the planet. I, you know, I, I have a hard time going out there with no data and just, you know, executing. So I've always personally just wanted data to support my decisions. 
So it was a combination of like really just naturally gravitating toward toward data for my own reasons. The other piece of it was really uh, understanding what data could do. You know, up until then, again, I'd used data to build applications, done some analysis, uh, a little bit of reporting, dashboarding, but I had never really seen predictive modeling, for instance, um, in its entirety and really dove into that area. And when I, th I think the first case study we looked at, which was the quintessential case, case study in predictive analytics back in the mid 2000s, and still is is relevant is Netflix. You know, Netflix back then was still the poster child of really leveraging data to, you know, very nth degree of of business value. So back then it was still a lot of DVD rentals. There was some streaming going on, but they they had predictive models that could predict within eighty five percent accuracy who's which customers are going to leave within six months. And I thought that was amazing. I was like, that see that. That's powerful, super powerful. And any business could predict, you know, a lot of things just using uh, the data they have. It's just a matter of organizing it, putting it together, figuring out what you want to predict, and then, you know, working on doing that. So that that case study in particular just, I don't know, it just it just uh, meant something to me. It really uh, opened, uh, opened my eyes to a lot of the possibilities of how businesses could leverage data. And I just thought that was fascinating. I loved it. So I uh, did everything I could to get into the field. What uh, would people look at for making that prediction? Is it like, like, what about someone who's never looked at anything related to this? Like, what are you, what are you looking at that tells someone like that you're predicting the future in like a high level way? You're saying, how do you, how would you approach that problem? Or how does net, how did Netflix? More or less, that? more or less. Yeah. You know, and it, it, it turns out just most predictive problems are, uh, you know, somewhat intuitive. I mean, you, you often know what variables might be causing, you know, an effect, you're not sure, but you created Kether a data set that Netflix had done 20, 30, 40 variables of usage patterns that customers had. You know, you obviously, you, you want to talk to business analysts and experts in the business and get their, what are, the, what are their two cents? What's their hunch? What do they think is driving, you know, uh, an outcome like retention or customer attrition? And then you see if you can measure that, put it into a, a, a variable, a model, create a target. What are, you, what are you targeting? Is it is it attrition? You know, how do you measure that? Measure that. And then run it through predictive algorithms, often many, and see which one, you know, seems to be working well and all that. But it's it takes a lot of, you know, to do it right, you actually want a lot of business input into what metrics are you even going to consider that could be driving your outcome. Was it only that one course you took in school? Because you kind of like in the story... The way you told it just now, it sounds like yeah. how you, and I guess the, the additional question is, is there a lot of software engineering in geology education? Is that like a thing you have to like, where was, that was kind of also a gap that Kyle may have had as well. Like, yeah, like, and I got a job as a programmer, or is that just because you get on the whiteboard? You know, there, there, it, there might be today. We did do some interesting modeling actually in my undergraduate where we would model systems. And so we would, you'd be able to create a complex system by modeling out basically nodes in the system and, and watching flows of whatever it is uh, through the system. Once you've created it, you know, kind of click run and see what, what happens. And it, that, what we were trying to get at was modeling actually earth processes like global warming, you know, even global warming, you know, what are this, you know, what are heat sinks? What are carbon sinks? What are, you know, how does temperature change if you do this or this? So yeah, it's modeling, but nothing, um, that was really analogous to the data world that I got excited about. So 
wasn't much of a bridge there for me. Yeah. And yes, it was just that one class, really. The rest of the, the classes were, I, I loved business school. I was on the edge of my seat for all of it. I just loved the ideas and all the aspects we talked about, whether it's finance or uh, marketing or team building, organizational structure, all that. But it was just that that one class is what really, uh, really, really struck me. And I, I again, I just focused on looking for data jobs specifically as, as soon as I, you know, basically took that class. And I was lucky, lucky enough to have a pretty strong network. Um, you know, one of the nice things about a part-time MBA, which, uh, which I took 10 years into my career, uh, is that you already have 10 years of experience. You have a career, you know, you have a network and all the, all the students are about the same place in their career. So you, you know, they already have a big network. So the network effects that you experience are pretty big and you, you, you meet a lot of people and you make a lot of connections. It's kind of half the value of the MBA in, in my mind. So at what point do you do data work on your own? Do you, I know there's a couple of companies between Climber and uh, Salesforce. There's a, probably a whole bunch of stories in the middle, but at what point do you kind of decide that you're going to strike out on your own and do this independent, independently? Yeah, so I, I had I had crossed my mind quite often, even 10 years before I started the company. And I always thought there's there's services work out there. They'd be really interesting. Um, it was only a half-baked thought, you know, it just, it was an idea. I didn't really know how to get started. I was pretty risk averse too, which is kind of funny because I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm always a conundrum. Like I'm an adventure seeker I've, from the day, my first memories are of adventurous things. My parents were always doing adventurous stuff. We were living all over the world and experiencing all this stuff. So on the one hand, I'm an adventure seeker. On the same hand, when it comes to maybe my financials, I'm a little more conservative. I don't know. I had um, uh, two young kids at the time too. So I, I always felt like I didn't have the the flexibility and the financial resources and all that to start my own company. Of course, in retrospect, I wish I had because it's, it, you know, it was, it was a lot, um, it was a lot, I want to say easier than, than I thought it would be, you know, because you just do it. You know, if you, if you have some experience and you have some skills, you, know, you can just, just do it. Perseverance is a big thing. You do have to persevere, right? But it, if you know, you can map out how you can work out the first six months, you know, then the rest will, will come into place and will fall into place later. So I just, but, but I guess I was, again, I was trying to probably be more conservative. Um, uh, I finally left Salesforce, uh, you know, primarily because ironically, internally, I mentioned the Oracle data warehouse we were on that even then that was getting a little bit antiquated. Um, there were cloud, other cloud vendors that were coming on scene. There were some powerful business intelligence tools and analytical tools like Tableau and uh, unfortunately, the, the sort of the, the culture at Salesforce was use Salesforce technology for everything, everything you possibly can build all of your internal apps on Salesforce, you know, do it all in Salesforce. We, we need to show the world that you can run your company on Salesforce, which is true for a lot of, a lot of business processes, but for data and specifically, that was a pretty big challenge. You know, we didn't really have a data warehouse per se. We didn't really have a business intelligence tool that was flexible and well-built yet, you know, at that, at the time. And so I was really kind of forced into using antiquated um, technology. And after a while, I, I, I just wanted to get more into the modern cloud data stack. And so I, I eventually left for, for a lot of those reasons. Uh, another funny side story or interesting side story is I spent about two years uh, just clawing um, tooth and nail to get Tableau into Salesforce. And, uh, and when I finally did it, we rolled out Tableau Server to about 300 people and was pretty successful, especially compared to some of the older legacy BI tools we were using. Like we're using 
business objects, which is now SAP. And, and, um, I just can never get users to even use it. It was so hard, you know, the usability, the UX was so difficult. So the whole thing was very clunky. Anyway, getting Tableau in was like a breath of fresh air and it was great, but it took me forever. And then, you know, a few years later, Salesforce turned around and bought Tableau and now it's everywhere and internally. Right. So I, 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 I sort of lived through the hard times there, <laughs> but I, I, I did, I did win after that, I went to uh, pop sugar and I led data there for about a year and a half. And, and again, it's, it's all these pieces that fall into place. Uh, you know, I guess if you, you know, if you have a vision, you, you may be more aware of the pieces and you know, when they're in place, you know, I didn't have a full vision, but over the years, again, I was thinking about starting something probably going to be services. And when I was at Pop Sugar, we were in the full modern cloud data stack. It was an Amazon stack, Amazon Redshift. We were using Tableau. Oh, and, and I purchased Looker, which uh, was a late stage startup at the time. It was like 2015, 16. And Looker is an amazing business intelligence platform. Um, you say you purchased really them, you mean like you saw that acquisition go through or you just used the, the tool? Sorry, I, I'm sorry. Yeah, but I purchased it for the company. Yeah, so I was, okay, okay. I was running it was one of the vendors that, you know, we, we purchased their, their software from. from. Got it. So we rolled out that and it was just a, a really nice system. And so when, the t when I full, kind of fully realized that, you know what, I've been at two companies in 10 years. I've seen two data sets, two sets of business problems. You know, I want to see a hundred data sets and a hundred companies and a hundred business implementations or data implementations, because I want to think of myself as a true expert. And I think the only way to do that is to see a lot of different variety, right? Of, of different technologies used in different ways in different industries. You know, then I could really walk into the, the next client I'm talking to and say, yeah, I've been there, done that. This is exactly how you should do things in this situation, you know, for your industry or for your data set or for your use case. That's what I wanted. And I realized I was never going to get that um, without consulting and, and getting out there and being a, a part of a lot of, of um, projects. Well, because I was, uh, I knew a lot of the folks at Looker because there was a small company and I was a customer, it was very easy for me to turn around and say, hey, um, I'm going independent. Uh, I'd like to start a company and I'm going to start by using your technology. I, lo I love your technology. I want to become an expert at Looker or I am an expert at Looker really, but I want to help your customers. You got to have a lot of customers that need help. Help me out. Give me a couple of customers. So, so within about a month, I had uh, a client or two that I was working with independently um, by helping the Looker uh, sort of customer success, success folks and uh, product folks. And it, that worked. So I started doing that and I was able to then um, uh, bootstrap this. And I've been growing the company ever since with the vision of a full stack data consulting firm. That's always been the vision of, of Data Climber. And now we're almost 50 people strong and, and full stack data engineers. Did you replicate that first strategy with other tools as an idea, as like a way to acquire customers or what happened? Because I think that there's a, there's a lot of steps between two clients and 50 employees. Yeah, you know, I, I did though, because uh, I grew the company um, at first based on my partnership relationships. So it was all about partnerships. I was not going out and getting my own leads and my own, you know, prospects. I would talk to my my partners at the time, um, Looker was my first partner. And so, uh, yeah, I absolutely just relied on them for um, prospects. And, um, you know, I would either, either come into a brand new lead they would have, and sometimes I could help with solution architecture, you know, often bringing me in um, free sale 
was great, right? Because I had a lot more experience than the sales rep. I, I was you know, a practitioner. I had tons of experience with data warehousing in general. So I could talk about everything from data strategy to the technology to uh, best practices and design patterns and all of that. So I, I could actually uh, expedite a sale. So I think that, that helped a lot. So on the one hand, having my experience did help quite a bit because um, I, um, I could really speak to prospects at a lot of different levels. Um, and then at the same time, could also be brought into an existing customer who is struggling with something. You know, they may have implemented spaghetti code and the whole thing was a mess. Uh, performance was, is an issue, what have you. You know, you can, always, you can still always definitely implement technology in the wrong way. Um, so, you know, we'd fix that and talk about how we would provide health checks to, uh, to clients. And so just providing both of those services with a partner was a way to get me going for sure for my say five, 10 people, I was able to hire those folks along the way and grow the number of pro projects we were working on. And just it's all about relationships, businesses about relationships everywhere. And so th that was a relationship was just really important. And then over time, I just expanded the number of partners I was working with and grew the company that way. What was your order for like, at what point you needed to bring people on? So did you need to just like, you got flooded with technical work and you're like, I need more technicians. Or you're like, there's not enough work anymore. People to bring in business. Or like, what what was like essential at the very beginning first? Yeah, you know, I've always, uh, that's one of the hardest part about bootstrapping a company is you have to make sure that you're uh, profitable as much as possible and yet growing. And so balancing supply and demand uh, always, is always on our minds. I uh, was simply able to find people quickly, you know, quick enough that when I knew a project was coming and I'd have maybe four or six weeks, sometimes advance notice, and I was able to, to find people and hire through my network. I already knew a lot of folks, um, or I, um, I found ways to, to, yeah, to bring people on early. Uh, so it was, it was, yeah, it was, it was just a balance. Uh, I would always try to look at the demand or what projects were likely coming down the pipe. I would definitely start my own recruiting efforts, uh, in tandem with that. And I was always able to fill the the demand need kind of amazingly. I'm trying to think of a time when, I mean, yeah, there there wasn't a, much of a time when we were in had any big crisis. You know, we were always able to meet the demand um, pretty well. So I don't know. It's kind of an art art of trying to balance those things as you go. But that's what we would do for sure. We would get a project, make sure we had to, you know we didn't have enough people to staff it. We'd hire a few people. Um, and I personally would do all the training and onboarding and I was doing everything and I just make sure it worked. A lot of times people were working, you know, I would be the, the face of the, the project and I had people helping me, you know, behind the scenes. Yeah. And now today you have some incredible clients, uh, among them are multiple NFL teams. What kind of problems would a, a sports team come to you with? And then what kind of solutions do you provide for those problems? Yeah, and those, that's a great story too, just how we got into sports. Um, uh, but, you know, it's fundamentally this, the, the problems we're solving for major league sports teams are the same problems we're solving at other clients. You know, it always comes down to data warehousing, creating a single source of truth for data for the organization so they can get a 360 degree view of the customer or the product or what have you. You know, that's kind of the goal of, of data warehousing. And so for sports, it's a 360 degree view of the fan and really understand how to engage those fans as optimally as possible, you know, to fill seats for every game and make sure that you have high fan engagement um, across the board. And you got a lot of fans, even outside the stadium, you know, 80% or more of fans don't actually go to a game ever. They're, they're, they're out there. We're just watching the games on TV. And so how do you engage 
at audience, things like that. And I was, again, fortunate just to, to be able to uh, start in that vertical by getting introduced to the uh, San Francisco Giants when I was in the Bay Area, small company. Uh, they wanted to invest locally in a small business that was going to help them, you know, locally. They were sitting there right in Silicon Valley, you know, take advantage of the talent right there. No need to go anywhere else, right? And um, and they understood early on even that the ideas of a modern cloud data stack and kind of going cloud and just making sure, you know, understanding that they had, there's te this technology existed out there that was going to make it a lot easier for them to do their data and analytics. They really didn't have anything uh, before that. So they really were working off of spreadsheets and st standard databases like Microsoft SQL Server um, that aren't data warehouses. And uh, they were struggling like a lot of companies out there, right? Um, major league teams are turned out to be about like a mid-sized business. They're usually 300 to 600 people. You know, they're not gigantic. And they have like, all the same data problems that any mid-sized business would have really data silos, slow data, not able to get answers quickly, all of those things. So they were looking for just that basic like data warehousing need, you know, can we just engage our fans? Can we run a campaign tomorrow and, you know, calculate how many net new fans we just created or customers really we created that that day or with that campaign because it takes us two weeks to do it right now. You know, that's kind of the where they were. Fast forward to today, they're 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 just super excited that they built a, a stack and they're running the entire um, business off of that stack and really enjoying the flexibility they have by able to being able to do whatever they want to do with it. Um, oh, but I, I forgot the story of that just is interesting. I was, I was actually traveling in overseas. I was in Amsterdam for a week, just kind of on vacation. And uh, I got a call from one of the Looker sales reps I'd worked with. He's the one who knew uh, the, the San Francisco Giants contact. And he said, hey, I want to introduce you to these guys. Um, I think they could use your help. And it wasn't even his account or his you know lead. It was just somebody he knew in his network, but he knew that they they needed help. And so uh, I, I connected with Rocky Koplik, who's the VP of engineering, uh, VP of, uh, sorry, analytics and data at the, at the Giants. And he was up at midnight and it was 8 a.m. my time in Amsterdam and he wanted to have a call. So he talked to me at midnight San Francisco time and <laughs> we hashed out a plan and uh, the rest is history. So, so that working with the Giants is what got us into all of the rest of the, the teams and the leagues we're, we're at now. Um, again, word of mouth. Um, Referrals is how that all works. And uh, we just made our name for ourselves in that specific vertical. It's been really, really great to be there. Would you also be the person providing insights for these people or are you just giving other people the tools to then go into their own data uh, in ways they previously weren't able to? Yeah, it's it's a little more of the engineering side of things and making sure they have the system and, and the data is modeled in a way that is really easy to use for the other systems or for the end users. Um, we do some of the analytics uh, to help them out, but often, you know, they have teams doing that, right? They have marketers, they have sales reps, they have the analysts even that, um, you know, whose job is sort of to figure a lot of this stuff out, pricing analytics for seat or ticket prices, all of that. So we're often just enabling them to be able to do those jobs in a much, much more efficient way with uh, much cleaner data too. Uh, you know, that's the other big um value add that that we've been able to bring the teams is is a, a golden record of their fan or a single you know record of the fan with a lot of data amalgamated and deduped de into a single record and when we did it at the giants for instance we reduced their fan database by 15 percent, which sounds like that's a problem but that's actually great that means they had 
a lot of duplication in their data. And when they were sending out emails or advertisements, they were targeting the same person twice, three times, right? And it was probably kind of a mess from, from a fan standpoint, the customer standpoint. So to be able to dedupe all that, create a clean record, um, you know, one row per person and understand who they are, understanding their, t their purchasing history, understanding everything they can about how to talk to them better, how to engage with them better as a fan. That's what, uh, that's the kind of thing that they could now do. They actually didn't have that capability before we came on the scene. Would it be fair to say there's kind of like a supply demand in that perspective in terms of like the, it's easier to find someone who can like work with numbers that are accurate than it is to find someone who can build like architect a system. So is that kind of like, would that be a fair statement? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, that's, I find that true. And that's kind of why we're a business, I, you know, I think is that a, a lot of people can do, uh, kind of know what they need to do and can do it, but they just don't have the, the data or the skills or just don't understand how to get to that point. And so we help them along that part of the journey um, and enable, yeah, all, all their data-driven efforts, if you will. How has the no-code wave, if you will, maybe it's hype and maybe it's not, maybe you can express your opinion on that, but kind of this big, I don't know, maybe just, I think we all have this this tendency to like, assign when we plugged into a movement as the start of that movement. Uh, so I'm about to just commit that fallacy here, but the no code uh, hype is something I started to notice kind of like right at the beginning of the pandemic. Maybe that's because that's when I got more online, but how has that changed things? Because now I feel like there's a lot of things people can do like Zapier, right? That wasn't a tool uh, probably when you started, well, I don't know when you started this business, but at least in 2008, it wasn't a tool. And all of these other just platforms that automatically one-click integrate all your sources and, and do all these things for you off the shelf, you know, no expertise needed. Has that affected anything? What have you run into with, with that changing kind of dynamics of the whole industry? Yeah, you know, I welcome a lot of those tools. I want things to be automated as much as possible and it's easy to automate, you know, for, for end users. However, um, there's always, it's always more complicated than you think, kind of the bottom line there. And that, again, that's why yeah, having some expertise in data is still a big uh, requirement in my mind to do anything Pro, you know, properly at your company, especially if you want to do it at a company-wide level and kind of do it right the first time, data is still difficult. You know, you, yeah, you can sync data in with a click of the button using Fivetran, but it still can be quite a mess. It still can be dirty. It still can be uh, giving you the wrong signals. The other, the other piece of it that vendors are still working on, but it's never, it, it's never going to be perfect is data modeling. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's the art of, of a lot of what we do. Uh, Raw data is really hard to interpret and use, no matter how well it's been attempted to be brought in, you know, clean from these sources. And so there's always um, a lot of uh, transformation from a raw, very just difficult to use data set that has a lot of things in it that you don't understand as an end user. Maybe one or two people in your whole company would be able to interpret the data essentially and tell you what it's really means. Um, so turning that into something meaningful and very easy to use for a thousand end users is still quite... Um, a task and, and it's something that we do well because you know, we love an experience doing data modeling and data warehousing. So there's a lot of steps uh, there's that still require um, a decent amount of thought and, and taking best practices and design patterns that have been developed over many, many years toward the problem. Uh, but it's great. Like it's, I, I would love to be able to walk into a company and say, you know, 80% of what you want to do is pretty much plug and play. And we can get that stuff going in a week, you know, or a day even get some stuff running. But you, you know, it's always that 20% that, uh, that you really want to be careful about and, and can cause lots of headaches and time, you know, 
sinks later on if you don't take care of them up front. Day to day, what are you most enjoying these days at this stage of the company where you're kind of sitting at the top? I don't know if you're diving into to spreadsheets or looking at rows of data every day, uh, at least client facing. Like, What is it that you're focused on at the moment and that you're finding the most enjoyable? Yeah, no, we don't use spreadsheets. That's what we try not to do. <laughs> um, I realized it when I said it, I was like, throwing <laughs> rows, tabular yeah. data, but non-spreadsheet tabular, maybe. No, I'm, I'm personally, you know, again, because I enjoy so many different things and I, I find that uh, I want to understand so many aspects of everything. I mean, I, I think that's why I was, I got into engineering in the first place. I want to understand how enterprise software worked. I want to understand how these things work. Um, but then I like to explore all sorts of different avenues around that, whatever it is, that, that subject, I want to keep going and understand the complete picture. So if I'm working in data for a business, I also want to understand the business. You know, I want to understand the customers. I want to understand everything. Um, and so I'm really enjoying running the company at this stage where I am, I am out of the day to day. You know, I, I used to play and you know, I have every, or wear every hat in the company uh, over time and I've slowly able to hire the right people that can do things better than I can for sure. And, um, you know, I hand off uh, lots of different roles and responsibilities to different teams and folks. And now um, I'm really enjoying spending more time, you know, just thinking about the future of, of the industry, where we're going um, and talking to clients more and more really to, to truly understand all of the different ways that our work is impacting the business and looking for the business outcomes. Um, it's amazing how hard, even, you know, almost all, how hard that is for a lot of companies to actually uh, really measure the value of, of data specifically. Um, so we're trying to help customers, you know, do that um, and then promote that as well. Um, so, so just a lot of thought leadership and, um, and doing things like this, you know, having interesting conversations about, uh, about the industry and about the technology we use and all of that. Is there any part of your life where you use data like personally? that other people would not i'm sure you know the lens through which you look at life is probably has a data filter but does anything come to mind that's a really good question um i've definitely thought about doing that a lot um i don't know if i have a great answer to that yeah it's kind of sad i i there's i know there's an answer to that what what have i done uh, gotta I've definitely gotta... done, put some spreadsheets together in my life, personal life, and, you know, figured some stuff out. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think I've just spent most of my time focusing, focusing on much bigger data sets for, you know, bigger clients than myself. Let's do a couple bonus questions here. And, you know, sometimes we, we break our own rules. If there's a question we meant to ask earlier, that's not so bonus themed. We don't really get so upset with ourselves. But you said you've lived in a lot of really interesting places growing up. What would you say is like the most obscure of those places? It's an interesting question. They're all fairly obscure. It's probably the first one. So I, when I was five years old, I lived in the Philippines for a year. And it wasn't just like a big city, Manila or something in the Philippines. It was a small island in the southern Philippines. So it was really a tropical paradise. Um, I, that's my first memories are playing on this white sand beach, this pristine beach, the huge coral reef right off kind of the front door, basically. I think I snorkeled most days of the year <laughs> with my mom. Um, and I, I lived right next to this really poor fishing village and I would just play with the kids and learn how to make kites out of like trash bags and, you know, all sorts of, of kids stuff. And so it was one big adventure um, 
even that that place for again very obscure i was so, so young i didn't really know better right um and i also i just a side note i mean i'm really really fortunate that i had that experience because i've gone back there 30 years later or something and the whole place is destroyed you know reefs are gone um, dynamite fishing is destroyed a lot of the environment around there there's just so much environmental damage going on in the world plus global warming is is also killing the reefs so it's amazing how fast things have changed but that was a pretty obscure place uh after that i lived in malaysia for a year in kuala lumpur when i was in in uh, a little older and 13 14 years old kind of obscure not not as much anymore new delhi india so variety of places that are somewhat obscure and uh we're very, very all very very different right but we, yeah, we every few years we would always uh, live overseas, and so, you know, what I what I took out of that was everybody in the world. I, you know, I, th I feel like people are the same wherever you go. You know, there's good people everywhere. Everybody wants very similar things. We all want to have great connections, family, friends. Uh, you know, um, we want to have so a, a whole social network. We want to have uh, safety, happiness, success, all that stuff, right? And so, everywhere you go, you know, you're going to find just people are really good in general and and uh and we're all here together so I, I i was really glad that i was able to travel a lot and figure that out it's really governments that get in the way in my yeah mind. have you done any extended living abroad as an adult kind of self-directed yeah another ironic thing i've always wanted to and have not found a way to do that yet um with my jobs and i don't know my family just haven't figured out how to live overseas even though again like i would love to do that so I've just done a lot of traveling, but never been able to uh, live. Although, you know, maybe now that we're all remote and it's a little easier, maybe, maybe I should. Yeah, I mean, you got the you whole should. continent with the same time zones, just break south. Exactly, exactly. Uh, I like to think I'm a visionary. I started this company full remote seven years ago when the, when the pandemic- That's early, very early. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's always been operated the same basic way. And yeah, we can't, you know, people do travel quite a bit um, with the company. A lot of people do actually go down south, Central America, South America, for stints. You mentioned briefly early on uh, that you love to be outside. Do you have a favorite hike or is, is there a an experience outside that, you know, is your favorite, whether it be camping, hiking, something like that? Oh, man. Yes. I don't know. It's hard to pick a favorite. I still to this day think that uh, one of the most spectacular experiences I had was backcountry camping in Denali National Park in Alaska. Uh, you, you, you go off with your backpack and your, your compass, essentially, and your topo map. There's no trails, you know, and you just disappear for 10 days in the wilderness. So that was pretty rust, you know, roughing it. Uh, there's grizzly bears everywhere. But it's great because the wildlife's actually scared of you, as it should be. And, you know, everybody... You know, you don't run into any big problems. So, wild, really, wildlife, or wild wildlife. So, I love that. That was just a pretty magical experience. Same thing in Glacier National Park. I've done the same kind of thing there for ten days, and go back in there, and it's pretty wild and very beautiful. So, yeah, those are two. The um, the other one that I definitely should mention that was just very interesting and unique experience was. Um, uh, this is back in college, but I spent a whole um, semester uh, in this program called Sea Semester that's out of Woods Hole, Massachusetts. You spend six weeks sailing on a 125-foot schooner, usually in the Caribbean. So my route was 
uh, from Miami, Florida, all the way down to Cuba, past Cuba, all the way down to Colombia, kind of came back up. So we sailed around the, a lot of the Caribbean for six weeks. And, you know, that was an amazing outdoor experience. I mean, I saw so many different, uh, so many different things. And the only downside was that I was, I figured out that I'm very seasick. It's very easy for me to get seasick. I was like the worst one on the entire ship the entire time. And I never got really got better. <laughs> so, uh, Amazing how you can look out the bad memories, you know, from an experience like that. That was a great answer. I love that. Um, one last question for me. How do you deal with fear? You know, uh, you face it. That's the first question. That's the first answer. Uh, and it's taken me a long time to figure that out. You know, literally facing directly into your fears and, and you know, and just going through it, you'll find that 99% of the time, not as bad as you thought. And I mean, that, it, that, that's truly it. You just go through it. You don't avoid it. Uh, you know, whatever you're scared of, seriously, just face those fears. There's a reason that, that that phrase exists, right? And it's true. And it takes a lot of gut sometimes. Uh, yeah, because you don't know what's on the other side. But I think people in general, you know, we're geared, most of us are geared to be fearful of, of a lot of things. That's why fear really takes hold in a lot of places in our lives. Um, but again, if I think if you personally just went through, just go back and look at your own history and look at something you were afraid of and, you know, tell me if you actually tried to address it and get through whatever that was, was it as bad as your, you know, did your fears come true? And I'm guessing the answer is no, in almost all cases. I love that. The 0.001% of the time though, that the fears, you die, right? Is that what happens? <laughs> Uh, and yeah, what you're what you're facing, yeah. <laughs> uh, if you're a free soloer, then maybe yeah, free soloer or a storm chaser. I, I don't know if storm chasers have here, right? That might be the whole point. I'm getting out of my depth here, but you shared that thought leadership is kind of a lot of your main professional focus now. What is it you're seeing technically on the horizon shaping that you're kind of excited for? You know, you're going to be one of the first companies to be doing this new thing that. It's kind of on the frontier of the data world. Yeah, you know what what that is, and this is, uh, I've always wondered why we have to have all these different systems to run a business, essentially. But what I'm excited about is the idea that data warehousing, which has traditionally been an analytics environment for mostly backward-looking, you know, analytics, looking at historical data, maybe doing some predictive modeling, but it's always been a side gig for the rest of the company. It's informed a lot of decisions, of course, and it's helpful. But as I, you know, a lot more recently too, um, we've seen this trend of pushing data warehouse data back into operational systems so that those systems can, you know, be better informed and essentially do more, you know, for less or do it more smartly or more optimally. And as that continues to, to happen, we're going to see a merging of operational applications and the data warehouse to a point where the data warehouse becomes an integral part of any company in terms of running the company and running the business. So, um, for instance, and I've been pretty excited about some of the technologies coming out lately that makes the data warehouse both a transactional database and a columnar sort of data store for large uh, data. But if, you know, one of the big headaches of data warehousing these days is all the work to get data in and push data out. It's all the pipelines you have to build to move the data around. And I think we're going to see a day when most of the data doesn't move that much. It's all in the same place. Some of it's leveraged for your operational analyst or operational 
uh, applications like yours, marketing automation, your CRM, all of that will be storing its data in the data warehouse directly. And of course, your analytics and all that will be also uh, built off the same data set. And so everything will merge into one, one more monolithic cl uh, cloud environment. That's where I see this going. And I'm excited to build, you know, be part of uh, this revolution of, I think, building more what a lot of the industry is, is calling data apps, where the whole application runs on a data warehouse instead of having its own data store. We have a couple partners uh, like that. One is like Flywheel um, Technologies that have built a marketing automation tool that will read directly from your customer data set in your data warehouse. So we'll come in and build a, uh, you know, a clean 360 degree view of the customer. Their application will just leverage that data directly. And, and they still have to push some of the data back into marketing operation tools, you know, to complete the picture. Um, so it's a, almost like a bridge between a, a future data app and where we are today. But I, I'm just excited to see the the merging of these worlds of of data and analytics and operational um, applications. What's enabling that? Like, what innovation is that? Just cheaper storage, faster internet, and it's just that. Or like, what 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 was what was developed that we can now do this? Yeah, you know, every single big innovation in data warehousing over the past ten years has helped a lot. I, I let me break that into two short answers, I'll try to make it short. One is, uh, if you go back to when I was in Salesforce, 2008, 9, 10, let's say, with a Oracle data warehouse, there's no way you're gonna run any kind of application on that because the query times were way too high. It was just too slow, performance was really hard. It was hard enough to do analytics, much less uh, um, uh, build an application in there or have an application even read the data, you know, it just take too long. Um, so all of the performance innovations that have come along in the last 10 years in cloud data warehouses, make it a lot more feasible. You know, you can expose a lot of your analytics to your customers, let's say through your website or through an application now because it's pretty dynamic and you, you don't have concurrency issues anymore because you can plan for that and you can automatically handle um, performance in lots of ways. So there's that. But the, the most innovative thing um, is, for instance, we do a lot of work with Snowflake. And uh, just this year, they announced this thing called the Unistore, which means uh, that they can store data that is meant for analytical applications. Um, so for transactional, essentially read writes, you know, very quick that most applications need in the same place that you can be storing your columnar 10 billion row table um, that has a lot of the historical data generated by that transactional application. So the fact that you can run an application in the same environment as you're running your data warehouse and analytics, um, that's when it gets really exciting because the the amount of real-time or new real-time updates you can get into all your applications at once, as well as your analytics, uh, becomes really interesting. You know, when you're seeing most everything in real-time and you're not having to wait sometimes days to actually see the full picture of what's going on. Well, this might be my, my last question here, uh, but a lot of the audience for this show is pretty young. What would you say makes someone, like, data a good career for someone who's interested versus not? Like, who's what kind of separates a good fit or not a good fit? And by the way, you are hiring. Climbers hiring. Yeah, big time. Shout out those job openings. We are hiring dozens of, of physicians all across data engineering, analytical engineering, engagement management, sales, the whole thing. Yeah. So if you're interested in data, definitely check out our website. Thank you, Kyle. <laughs> I, you know, I'd and say the remote roles. Sorry. All remote. Yeah, 100% remote. All remote. Um, yeah. Great benefits. The whole thing. There's, there's I hear it's good boss, too. Oh, I know. The boss is amazing. 
so it's a couple of things. One is uh, uh, curiosity. Now, I think you, if you're a curious person and you really want to find answers, you're going to do well in data because data is still hard enough that it takes a lot of, a lot of work to actually get to the answer. So being curious, if you're not curious and you're not like sort of naturally curious, I think eventually it's, it's not going to be interesting to you. The other aspect though, is the, the technical side of things. Um, you know, if you're, if you are interested in, in just software development in general, that's one thing. And I think that's a, that's a great start. If you're interested in that, you might be interested in data engineering for sure. But, uh, I find that, uh, most people probably just confuse the two or don't realize how different they are. Um, you know, we, we often, uh, well, data, let's put it this way. Data engineering is almost like night and day different than software engineering in my mind. And we have a lot of clients that fall into that trap of, you know, saying, well, we got a bunch of software engineers. We're a high tech company. We can build a data warehouse ourselves, you know, because we have technical people, but it's, that's such a mis, um, you know, misunderstanding, um, because the way you handle data and code data is totally different than, you know, building an application. But again, if you're interested in the techno technical side of things and you like organizing and structuring and, uh, and again, I think ultimately though, you have to be curious because you want to know how you're going to organize all this data to make a difference, to answer a business question. Awesome. Well, I think that's a good place to uh, wrap things up. Stay curious, everyone. That's that's the final tip. Uh, if you want to be successful, probably in anything, that included. Aaron, where should we be sending people? I don't know if we have large enterprise listeners, but perhaps we do, and they might need help with. Dataclimber.com. Um, that's C-L-Y-M-E-R, which happens to be my last name. Uh, the domain was available when I started the company, and it kind of made sense, so I went with it. Um, so dataclimber.com, check out the website. Uh, if you, if you forward slash podcast singular, um, you'll actually get to this recording and some other podcasts we've recorded. So both places. And then if, I guess the third place is our careers page. Go check that out for sure. Super fun. Thank you so much, Aaron. This is a great time. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's great talking to you both. That is going to close out this conversation with Aaron Clymer from the company Data Climber. Three takeaways for me, and then we will all just move on. One, the referral partnerships. I've actively been trying this in my own business since listening to this episode. Remains to be seen what the results are, but either way, very much a worthwhile strategy to try. I've gone on the phone with a lot of interesting people in the partnerships departments of the major software apps and tools I like to use uh, in my consulting firm, and not something I would have thought of had it not been for this episode. So thank you, Aaron. Second takeaway is that working in tech in general is super fun because things are always evolving and changing so quickly. Uh, not only does that create fun, it creates new opportunities because as new things emerge, if you kind of move quickly and learn them quickly, there's a lot of opportunity based on being the first to be good at something that is just emerging and exciting. And then the third takeaway is just for y'all to copy what I'm doing. I am currently, like I've said, and kind of mentioned a couple times in this episode and just now, I'm trying to scale data analytics consulting firm. So what am I doing? I'm taking time with an expert like Aaron, someone 10 or more steps ahead of me, who's just given me all this extremely valuable advice and insight and stories and also just belief, right? Because it's like, here's at the end of the day, a regular guy and he found a way to do it. So I mean, it's going to take time and I'm going to have to learn a lot and try a lot, but I'm going to get there too. And it's super valuable to be able to learn from someone, again, a couple steps ahead on the journey or more than a couple. Anyway, copy what I'm doing. Whatever you're trying to do, whatever your goals are, find that guy who's ahead of you and can give you some advice. 
that's it for me in this conversation with Aaron. I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did. Be sure you are subscribed wherever you are listening. That could be Apple Podcasts, that could be Spotify, that could be YouTube, and you will know about the next episode. That's the magic of the subscribe button. Make sure you're following Aaron if you enjoyed what he has to say and you want to know the latest in data. You can see why I made that mistake now. And also be sure to check out Vasa if you're interested in hiring a virtual assistant to scale your operations and take work that's not the highest and best use of your time off of your plate. And off, also people just are usually better at it. Like my editor, she's way better at editing than I am. It's amazing. I get, she gets to do it. I get to do the things I'm good at. It works out so well. So definitely check out Vasa if that is something you need help with. And uh, not just for podcast editors. That should be self-evident, I hope. Anyway, share the show if you know someone who would enjoy it or do nothing if you don't want to do anything. Uh, no obligation. The show's free either way. No matter what, I am grateful to you for listening. I will see you next time. Bye-bye.